Let's continue with our study on Psalm 78. Psalm 78, passing on God's word to the next generation. And this is the third part of our study. Now, Psalm 78, as we've mentioned previously, focuses on passing on God's word to the next generation. And the importance of passing on that word is that there's an expectation of obedience. And obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings cursing. And so this challenge is laid forth to the, the one generation to train up the next generation. Now, again, I want to repeat throughout the scripture, there is a commitment of nurturing and admonishing the next generation in the things of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. As well, the book of Proverbs is, is a collection of instructions from parents to their children. And of course, right there in the Torah, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 to 7, we're told that these words which I command you today shall be in your heart and you have a responsibility. You will teach them diligently to your children. I think that uh, several things need to be pointed out in that verse. First of all, what are we to teach? We're to teach the commands of God. And it's a command. It's not if you feel like it. It's not if it's convenient. It is a must-needs-be action. And then notice how they are to be taught diligently. In other words, with effort. You know, it's not haphazardly done. We, we take every possible means to teach to teach it properly, to teach it correctly, to teach it thoroughly. We put as much exertion as we can into it. And again, because we are handling the word of God. And, and, and it's sad to say that so often we put such great exertion in, into our hobbies and into you know our sports and into this, that, and the other thing that we enjoy. But when it comes to the scriptures, we seem to have a ho-hum attitude. And then we don't understand why the next generation has no time for the things of God. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we began with a call. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. And so there's a call to pass on God's word to the next generation. Verses 5 through 8. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. And so following the call, there's the command, a clear command to pass on God's word. And along with God's work, or God's word rather, uh, included in that is, God, is God's works, which of course are contained in his word. And then last time we saw two cautions. First caution was in verses 9 through 11. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle 
They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his laws. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. And so caution one, beware of forgetting God's word and works. Now, what begins here with verse nine, all the way down through the end to verse 72, is a example after example of example of what we're supposed to be teaching the next generation. Now, obviously, we're to first and foremost teach them the commands of God. Thus says the Lord, okay? Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. All right, that, that's clear in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six and seven. But beyond that then, the psalmist here is, is giving us a list of, here's what you do. You go back through the history of Scripture, and you teach the history of Scripture for their learning, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans uh, 10 and in 1 Corinthians. These things are written, speaking of the, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, these things are written for our instruction, for our learning. And so as you're passing on the God's word to that next generation, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your spiritual sons and daughters, here's what you do. One, you train them in the commands of God. Two, you then begin to go through the scriptures, just as the psalmist does here. He's going through the Old Testament and he's finding lessons for them particularly having to do with God's word. And so he uses the example of Ephraim, beware of forgetting God's word and works. Verses 12 to 20, we have our next caution, our second caution, beware of testing God's word and works. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their hearts they put God to test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock, so the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? And so again, there's a warning here. Beware of testing God's word and works. There's a consequence. There's a consequence if you forget God's word. There is a consequence if you test God's word. Now we come to our fifth point, and this is verses 21 through 33. Verses 21 through 33, and it's another caution, caution number three. Beware of doubting God's word and works. Beware of doubting God's word and works. Verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and an anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did not eat the man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power directed the south wind when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sands of the sea. Then he let them fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwelling. So they ate and were filled and their desire he gave to them. 
before they had satisfied their desire while their food was in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choicest men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. And so he continues the Exodus narrative. Uh, Our psalmist here continues recounting the Exodus narrative. And again, it's a caution. Beware of doubting God's word and works. Now, you recall that previously Israel had tested God's word. Well, now, because they've tested his word, his wrath is kindled against them. You know, he's, he's ignited. His wrath is fire. Often in the scriptures, we see that God is a consuming fire. That's a description of how he burns with anger. And yet at the same time, he is pouring out provisions on these people. He's giving them manna, uh, angel food, as it's called here, bread from heaven. He's giving them uh, birds, uh, winged creatures who they're going to cook and eat and roast the meat and enjoy. He gives them water from a rock, and yet they're still not satisfied. And so the Lord is now furious, and his wrath is blazing against Jacob and against Israel. Again, the parallel statement you see there, Jacob and Israel are one and the same. Jacob was the name of the uh, of the man uh, whose name was later changed to Israel, but then also became synonymous with the Hebrew people. Now, back in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1, we read, When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Now, that's just one example of the constant testing, the constant doubting of God's word. I mean, these these people stood at the base of Mount Sinai at a distance, but stood there seeing God's power, seeing his works, hearing his word, and were terrified, and yet they doubted. They saw the plagues. They saw the Passover. They saw the Red Sea, and yet they still doubted. They had a heart of unbelief. Now, understand, this is not unbelief in the sense of saving faith, but sanctifying faith. Now, let me just briefly clarify. These children of Israel demonstrated saving faith when they applied the blood to the doorpost of their houses. These were saved individuals. In fact, uh, uh, there's a passage in Numbers, I believe it's chapter 14, that confirms that they were indeed redeemed. And yet, as the redeemed of God, they still struggled with what we call sanctifying unbelief. Okay? So they had saving faith, but they didn't have sanctifying faith. See, sanctifying faith is what happens after you're saved. After saving faith takes place and begins to grow, sanctifying faith is is what is born. And this is what happens that uh, if we don't, if that, if we don't feed that, if we don't teach, okay, that sanctifying faith becomes stymied. That sanctifying faith has to be developed, okay? And that's why we begin with, don't forget God's word. Don't test God's word. And now don't doubt God's word. And so the unbelief that's demonstrated here is, again, is not 
unbelief in the sense of they didn't believe God for salvation. They had, they were, and God confirms, yes, they were redeemed. But what they were doubting was, could God do what he said? So they're in a relationship with God, but their faith is is weak. It needs to grow. And the only way to grow the faith of the next generation is through teaching God's word, training them up in the way they should go. Now, their, their sanctifying faith is evident that they don't have it because several times, I believe it's 10 times in the book of Numbers, they doubted God. They didn't believe his promises. And so they didn't throw themselves upon God. Uh, we see they did not trust in his salvation. Now, again, let's not misunderstand the word here. The word salvation, as it's being used here in the text, is not saving faith, but is physical deliverance. They didn't trust that he would physically deliver them. Now, again, he delivered them out of Egypt, delivered them out of the Red Sea, brought them to Sinai, and yet they're still struggling. Listen, this is just like the disciples for three years walking with Christ, and yet they had saving faith, albeit Judas didn't, but they lacked sanctifying faith. Now, their sanctifying faith was growing, but even up to the time of Christ's betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion, they they, they exhibited unbelief. They fled. They didn't trust God. Still saved, saving faith, but lacking sanctifying faith. Now, we come back to our text here. So God feels used, if you will. He's feeling that he's been rejected, and that is what was happening here. And so here's God's grace abounding. And, of course, we think of Romans 5.20, grace abounds greater than our sin. In spite of Israel's sin, he's still providing them, still delivering them, not allowing them to starve to death. He sent, opens the doors of heaven, rain down manna, uh, corn or grain from heaven that was sent for their physical satisfaction. Um, six days a week, this food was, this manna was provided on the sixth day, a double portion. So they didn't have to gather on the seventh they could, or the Sabbath day, they could rest. Uh, he, get, he meets their demand for meat in, uh, in verse 20. We see here in 26 to 27 that he sends an east wind, a south wind, uh, to bring to drive these birds there so that they could uh, have food to eat, meat, protein. Now, notice here what happens, though. As the quail comes, Israel begins cooking and eating the food, and while they're in the midst of filling their bellies, while the food is still in their mouth, God's judgment falls. Numbers 11.33, but while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of God was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Now, why? Because of unbelief. Because they doubted God's word. Listen, God still provided a provision, but don't read that provision as a blessing for obedience, because with that provision came a curse. And, you know, that's good for us to, to remember. You know, we're, we're, we're so quick. Well, well, this must be a blessing from God. Listen, don't look at everything and think, oh, that's a blessing. You better back up and ask, well, was I obedient? Because that provision, that thing that you think is a blessing may not be a blessing if you haven't been obedient. It may be a curse disguised as a blessing as it was here. God said, I'll give you your wish. 
And before they were able to enjoy it, he destroyed them. The stoutest, the best of the lot, the choicest men of Israel, he destroyed. And yet Israel still sinned, still exhibited unbelief, still failed to trust in God's wondrous works. And you know, here's a great lesson. I hear so often, oh, if God would just do a miracle like he did in the Bible, uh, my so-and-so would believe and be saved. Folks, miracles cannot compel anyone to faith. Uh, Listen, even the miracles that Moses did, the the Egyptians were able to uh, mimic many of them. And so, you know, the question is, do we believe in the miracle or do we believe in the God of the miracle? And we've asked that before. I ask it now. Uh, We need to know the living God, and uh, we're thankful for the miracles that the living God produces, but our faith has to be not in the miracle, but in God. So again, beware of doubting God's word and work. Now, we're going to do one more caution, and that's uh, in verses 34 to 39. Uh, This is our next caution, beware of deceiving God. Now, this is our sixth section. And it, I believe, is our fourth caution. Beware of deceiving God. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues, for their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return." we see a pattern beginning to develop here. Now, God's wrath is an event. He slew them. He wiped them out. And so Israel responds by, hey, we need to protect ourselves. Well, we need to seek after God. And and, and boy, isn't this just the example of people, of believers today? You know, as soon as God brings some judgment into their life, right away, oh, we we need to seek God. Let's get right with God. And, and, and we think, okay, well, that's good. Uh, now, the word seek here is interesting because it means to worship. They returned, they repented, and sought God, searched for God, worshiped God early. The word early there is the idea of quickly. Um, and, and, and what we're going to see here, this is nothing more, though, than foxhole religion. Okay, They just went through some outward motions. Oh, let's worship God. Oh, let's say we're sorry to God. And notice what happens. All of a sudden, they deceived God. Now, before we get to to, to verse 36, let's go back here for a moment. They remembered God. Verse 17, he's the most high God. Verse 35, he's their rock, their redeemer. Uh, He's their security. He's their protection. Um. That, uh, that that he delivers them from their enemies. But again, it's all lip service. Because what we come to in verse 36 and 37 is, when the pressure was off, they revealed they were nothing more than deceptive. They were just flattering God, just giving him lip service, lying and displaying the fickleness of their heart. This is a smokescreen worship, thinking they're going to impress God 
on the surface while inwardly they continue their rebellion. And folks, we see this today amongst the church, amongst Christians. And this is one of the things we need to warn that next generation about. Don't give God lip service. Don't go through the motions if your heart isn't right. You may not be a rebel on the outside, but if you're a rebel on the inside, there's going to be a consequence. So much so that in the book of Isaiah, uh, uh, God commanded them to bring no more futile sacrifices. I'm not interested in your sacrifices because your heart's not right. You know, you just keep bringing these sacrifices and it, it's just, I, I can't endure it any longer. I'm, it makes me sick. I want to spew it out of my mouth. And yet, in spite of the people's deceiving God, we still see God's mercy. Yes, he's judging them. Uh, his wrath is being kindled again, but it's being balanced with his mercy, with his love. So much so that uh, it says here, he remembered they were but flesh. They're sinners saved by grace. They're a vapor. They're a wind. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And so despite their deceiving him, he was compassionate. He forgives. He did not destroy. He restrained his anger. Now, that doesn't mean we can go on deceiving God because God, though long-suffering, does have an end date. His mercy does have an expiration date. And just like when that milk passes the expiration date and it's undrinkable and it stinks, let me tell you, when God's mercy reaches the expiration date, it's going to stink. You're going to smell sulfur, the sulfur of fire of God's wrath. You know, we need to praise God that he has compassion on us. That he realizes that we're just flesh. That we're a fleeting breath. James reminds us in James 4.14, life is a vapor. It's here for a little while and vanishes away. Friends, the warning is this. Number one, don't doubt God's word. And number two, don't deceive God. I want to give you a verse from Galatians. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, that you will reap. We need to pass that principle on to the next generation. And as we tell them that principle, don't just speak it, live it, okay? It's not just enough for us to tell the next generation, don't doubt God's word. You better live that way. Don't just tell them not to deceive God. You better not be deceiving God. So examine yourself Get your life right, get your lips right, and go on and pass it on to the next generation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you, the Father of spirits. Again, being reminded that you are the one who created us. You are the one who breathed life into us. You're, you infuse this physical body with a soul and a spirit, setting us apart and making us distinct from every other creature every other soulish creature. And so, Lord, as we come before you through your Son, who became a little lower than the angels, who for a moment in time took on human flesh, endowed with a human spirit, went to the cross so that we could now come boldly before your throne of grace. And Father, we plead with you because we need your help. 
We need your help to make sure that our lips and lives are right with thee. That, Father, we're not doubting. That, Lord, we're not deceiving. But that, Lord, what is on the outside is demonstrable of what is on the inside and vice versa. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for those times we have doubted. Forgive us for those times when we have deceived you. And, and Father, we, we, we have to confess that we're all guilty. We're all guilty of giving you lip service without life service. And so forgive us. Father, we pray for that next generation. We pray for the great responsibility that is incumbent upon us to train up the next generation in the way they should go. And again, Father, training isn't just reading them a, a verse and letting them be. It's, a, it's actively teaching. It's teaching them the commands, teaching them the precepts, teaching them the principles, and not just in lip, but through our lives. It's doing it energetically. It's doing it enthusiastically. And it's engaging them in each and every area of their life and, and confronting them, not just when they're young, not just when they're adolescents, not just when they're teens, not just when they're early adults, but all through their lives. So long as they're children, we have a responsibility to train them in the way they should go. Father, I know there's going to be a time of rebellion, but we claim that promise that if we have properly trained, then when they are old, they will not depart from it. And Father, we give you the praise, we give you the glory, and we say to that, amen.